Shakespeare's sonnets ain't even bothered. My mystery sides are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hair be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damask red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfume is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music have a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belies with false compare. Bite me, alien boy! <laughs> Sorry, what did I miss? Everything. Anglo Gettle's gone. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl, that'd be about it. I have failed the sisterhood. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. We're not here to judge. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16? Yes? 16 of Anglophies. If it's not 16 and it turns out to be wrong, well, I'll just dub over this. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee, and we really should start checking what episode it is before we start. Well, we had been for a while, and then... You're right, it'll be 16. Yay! We're geniuses. <laughs> um, and we're here to talk about the bard himself. No, not bard from The Hobbit. We, we mean Shakespeare. <laughs> but before we do, there's a couple of housekeeping and some important information that we think you all should know. So, Alina, what what happened with her comment section? Um, it went away? Possibly? <laughs> yeah, this was weird. Um, yeah, our website has been undergone some technical difficulties, and unfortunately during a time when uh, uh, there was a kind of an inflow of people visiting, so I really do apologize to our listeners. Um, at w- one point about a week ago, I logged into the website and I noticed that the comments are no longer accessible and Raiden and I spent some time trying to find them and we couldn't. Uh, I spent a lot of time trying to troubleshoot to bring them back and um, what ended up happening is we ended up having to rebuild the SQL database and uh, re-upload WordPress and um, I-, I exported and then imported the posts but the comments were gone for good and I couldn't resurrect them so... Let's, let's hold a moment of silence for the lovely comments you listeners have left. We really did appreciate them. And uh, I promise to back up our information a little more regularly from now on. I think after every new posting, it's just going to be an export of the website as it stands. But the, at least the system is back up and running. You can leave new comments, which we're really looking forward to. Uh, and once again, I apologize to anybody who tried to access um, the show and found it inaccessible for it was about a space of two days when it really couldn't be reached we're not censoring anybody we promise Mm -hmm. we really are quite upset that we lost those comments because it was lovely of you guys to spend time to write them and some of them were really good Mm. really really good the ones that weren't were usually mine so there (laughs) you go um other important things community started on january 2nd and Dan Harmon is back, and it's better than ever. Last week's episode was Amaze Balls. Amaze Balls. I'm and so happy it's back. Back to like the theme of the episode is a riff on the genre. Oh, it's so good, you yeah. guys. Go back to it. Yeah. And most important, we have the date that Hannibal returns to our TVs. 
And that's a lot earlier than we expected because Brian Fuller really is Santa Claus. And that will be February 28th. It's now on Fridays, which is good for me because now I can actually DVR and watch live um, as opposed to having to wait until after Scandal is over because we are a Scandal household here. Um, So, February 28th, Fridays, taking Dracula's spot. Oh my god! There are swimming trunks involved, people. This is not a drill. And if you haven't seen the poster... Google the poster for season two. We'll put it, it is up. releasing that poster on the same day as releasing the date for second season premiere. Brian Fuller knew what he was doing. He may be Santa, but he can be a devious one at times. Oh yes, shifty eyed Santa, <laughs> and we love him for it. Um, was there anything else we wanted to cover? Well, we could cover the swimming trunks, Mass Mickelson, for a while if you want. I'm easy. I have extensive literature. <laughs> here first, people. <laughs> um, so I think that's all the important housekeeping details y'all need at this time. That should be enough, right? That's good. Excellent. So Shakespeare. He's sort of a cultural icon in the English-speaking world. He's a big deal. He's quite a big deal. Mm. If you've ever been part of the English language schooling system, the chances are you have read or at least watched a movie of one Shakespeare play in an attempt to not read the play. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes you get to watch the plays in class so you actually see people speaking the language as it is meant to be spoken. Thank you, Kenneth Branagh, for making that possible. At least that was the most common movies we saw when I was in high school. So quite a lot you gotta of love old Ken. I know he's a lovey like crazy, but I don't care. <laughs> Sir Kenneth, actually, we should say. So does anybody have a favorite play? Oh. I'll be honest, I don't. I think it's kind of a... I don't know. He sometimes I'm sure some people like some plays more than others, but I think his body of work is kind of a thing unto itself. Plus, we have had had to read so many of them in, in school, which always colors your perception of a work. But I think if there was one of us who'd have a favorite play, it would be Kaylee. <laughs> I like to put things in lists of favorite things. Um, and I have a top 10 favorite plays list, but I have actually grouped my favorite Shakespeare plays together on one place on the list. Because, as you mentioned, it's kind of hard to separate his body of work. Uh, my favourites are Hamlet, because, obviously. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is probably my favourite of the comedies. I love just how manic it is. I love plays about mistaken identity. I love plays about, you know, you know confusion and that sort of thing. Even though it's probably one of the less women-friendly comedies. Uh, and I really love Titus Andronicus. Because it features uh, rapists being cooked into a pie. <laughs> and I've seen three separate productions of it in the space of about a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to point out that I just found some magic cards inside my edition of Shakespeare. My nerdiness cannot be contained. Clearly. <laughs> They're oversized foils. I was trying to straighten them because they curl, and I found like the biggest, thickest book, which is my Norton edition of Shakespeare's <laughs> collected works. <laughs> and I completely forgot that I put them there. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, paper. I think I know the first play I ever read. Um, long before I really understood exactly what was going on was Romeo and Juliet, and I really like Much Ado, and I really like Twelfth Night, and I'm really quite fond of Macbeth. We're not sure saving that. It's fine. <laughs> I have a soft spot for um, for Much Ado mainly because it really sets it in place one of the archetypes that I love about romance, which is the Beatrix Beatrice Benedict dynamic. Mm-hmm. I am a complete sucker for that, be it in romance novels or movies or books or anything like that. Like Raiden, I read, I'm pretty sure Romeo and Juliet was the first one I've read, but I read it in Russian, and I probably was about 12 or so, um, which is a different experience because the language is just more, you know, they don't write it in archaic Russian. It's poetic, but it's modern. Um, so it's a, probably a lot more accessible to, you know, a younger child to read. But like Kaylee, uh, Beatrice and Benedict is the, my favorite romantic dynamic, and I always thought it was a lot more romantic than Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> that was yeah, my favorite. They're my favorite romantic couple. I think Romeo and Romeo and Juliet is kind of the. It's often the intro to Shakespeare for a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. particularly if you've seen the Baz Luhrmann movie, which I have a lot of love for. Mm-hmm. I actually think Baz Luhrmann's first three movies are pretty brilliant, um, and he did what Kenneth Branagh did in a sense, which was to take this some this um, play that's seen as very archaic to our generation at the time and make it something very populous like it was in Shakespeare's day. And his is very you know, garish and bombastic and it features silly music and cross-dressing and hilarious teen angst and I think it gets a couple things wrong but overall I think he, he makes a pretty solid effort at it and it's the one that we watched in school because we were you know 12-year-old girls and it was Leonardo DiCaprio of course <laughs> we watched it. I think it's important just because it's such a big uh, reference point, right? You hear people use the words Romeo and Juliet all the time. So it's kind of one of those uh, plays you should be familiar with, even if you're not actually going to end up liking it, just so you get the reference. Mm-hmm. I think even if you've never read or seen Romeo and Juliet, the moment someone tells you it's a Romeo and Juliet story, story or they're star-crossed know. lovers, you know what they're talking about. It's mm-hmm. entered the, the, sort of yeah. the psyche in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in the cultural shorthand. I, I think I read it the first time when I was maybe 10. And I, I was thinking about this, um, that kind of like when we had Shannon on and she was talking about how she would read things that she didn't have context for when she was younger and so anything she didn't understand she decided was irrelevant and that's kind of what I did so as I've reread it time as I've gotten older I keep finding things that are interesting and that I didn't catch catch before (laughs) and then I read it in college and we overanalyzed every fucking line so now I I don't want to read it again I really like, I love reading, when I was younger, I loved to read things I didn't understand a thing of. So I would read all of these books that were way out of my age range and would talk about things I didn't get. But it was a case of that, like, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer watches Twin Peaks and goes, brilliant, I have no idea what's going on. And that was essentially my entire adolescence. Um, Kind of a geek moment, but you know the the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Darmok? 
which is all about uh, an alien species who communicate entirely through metaphor. They have these phrases whose meanings encoded due to that. Well, Romeo and Juliet are were an example used at one point uh counselor troy is trying to explain this to the uh, to the rest of the crew i think she, just will Riker, and she says if i tell you juliet on the balcony do you understand what i'm trying to say and he was like well yeah i think you know beauty or romantic love or so that was the example they used mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh how about we talk about play scene live because, Kaylee, you know, Raiden and I are not complete heathens. We go to theater sometimes, too. We know Kaylee's fabulous, and she gets to go to the Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> <laughs> it's true I am a pretentious lovey in training, completely. I am that person that wants to add darling to the end of every sentence. <laughs> what, was, I'm tra- what was my very first experience with Shakespeare? It was, the first play I saw that was Shakespeare um, was, was actually Romeo and Juliet, and I was 17, and it's very interesting because now the guy who played Romeo in that, no, not Romeo, I think he played Paris, is going to be in the Outlander TV show. Mm-hmm. So I get to drop to all of my extremely impressed American romance reading fa- uh, friends that I know who Jamie is. <laughs> but it's a completely different experience watching it live from what we had originally seen, which was the Baz Luhrmann movie. You get to see this sort of intensity of live performance. You get to see the actress perspire, which is one of the reasons I love theatre, because the performance you see is never the same as the one that you, you know, someone else will see the next day. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience with Shakespeare, and I have seen more since. I've seen, as I mentioned, uh, three separate versions of Titus Andronicus. Uh, I've seen Comedy of Errors, which was done by an all-male troupe, which was really fabulous. I've seen a take on Macbeth that was done inside a room made into a World War One bunker, and I'm sure I've seen another one. Oh, I've seen so many. I've just lived such a wonderful <laughs> life. I can't remember them all. But one of the reasons I really love watching Shakespeare be performed is because Shakespeare is rife for reimagining. You will seldom see these days someone just perform Shakespeare the way it would have been performed at, at its time. Mm-hmm. There are some plays that require you to basically follow the instruction, you know, follow the directions pat down. Like Tony Kushner's Angels in America should be performed exactly the way that Tony Kushner tells you to do it. With Shakespeare, you have so much more leeway because you can move it to modern day or you can have, you could put all of the roles, um, you cast all women in the roles because originally Shakespeare only had men on the stage. You can up the tension of a particular scene so that it changes the entire outcome of the play. Um, good example of that is if you, you can, with Othello, you can have Iago be driven by revenge, you can have him be driven by secret homoerotic lust, you can have him be driven by secret love for Ophelia. The, the, the amount of changes you can make with Shakespeare is practically limitless. And I think that's why people keep coming back to it, not just because he's so ubiquitous with the English language, but because he offers creative minds just so much to do. Mm-hmm. That can you go know, wrong really easily, but... You know, I, you I always, may as well give it a shot. I always thought if I could ever, if I could write a novel, like if I thought myself capable of that kind of work, what I would do is reimagine, do a novel reimagining of Hamlet from the point of view of Queen Gertrude, in which she reveals that Hamlet is actually Claudius's son, Ooh. because the affair has been of long standing. I think that would, that would be just an interesting idea to explore. Okay, have fun. Bye. Hi, Kira's mom. mom. Hi, Kira's mom. <laughs> it's been so long. 
<laughs> Sorry, I was trying to do it really quietly. I wasn't going to yell, but she's just going out. So. <laughs> Thank you, mom. <laughs> but speaking of Shakespeare Live, uh, because I live in Ontario, I'm lucky enough uh, to live near. We have a, a town called Stratford, and it has a Stratford Festival. Uh, it's a network of theaters, and it's basically a, a theater town. And every season, they have this playbill of plays. Not all of them are Shakespeare. Uh, but my husband and I have gone several times, and we've had a fabulous time. A few years ago, we saw their... Uh, was it a midsummer? It was a Midsummer Night's Dream. Which they're putting on again this year, but I think in quite a different uh, style. But it had uh, Geraint Wynne Davies in it. Ooh. Uh, for those who remember the Forever, Forever Night. Forever Night. Yes. The best vampire oh. TV show of the 90s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was really, it was really fun. Uh, it was kind of set in, the, I guess, night... Uh, Judging by the clothing, they were going for like 1940s and 50s. Um, there was kind of a vague um, in, inflection of the war that between Theseus and the Amazon being maybe kind of World War II-ish. Um, so, but that kind of was all incidental, right? Because it's 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 so fantastic because the, when the lovers are in the woods, puck rough, uh, rifles through one of the women's, I don't remember which, uh, suitcases, and she has this pink bra, and he spends the rest of the play jumping around the stage, and he has the pink bra tied around his uh, leg, and then he's just waving it around. <laughs> <laughs> and it was we were laughing so hard, especially at the play within the play at the end, was had the audience just sliding down in their seats mm-hmm. from uh, laughter. It was... It was great. Um, this, I'm just looking at their website. The season they're putting on from the Shakespeare, they once again have a Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, King Lear, but they uh, they also have they have Christina the Girl King this season. That looks interesting. I might have to go back sometime this summer. <laughs> I also remember seeing a Romeo and Juliet in high school. They took us to see a live production and but I don't really remember what my impression of it was and I'm kind of curious if now as an adult I would have found it good because as a kid and watching with classmates it's kind of hard to really pay attention to the quality of the work in front of you while I found it was was Mm -hmm. hard how about you Raiden plays you've seen live um I think the first play I ever saw live was Shakespeare in the Park when I was maybe 10 or so and that was measure for measure and I remember nothing about it because I didn't know the play I didn't know the story I think we were late so that was kind of a disappointing introduction Um, that's a weird play to be introduced to as well I mean that's usually one that's kind of forgotten yeah but it it had the advantage of being in a park that was a couple of blocks away from my house and it was free and in the summer, and I'd been saying, I want to go to a Shakespeare play. I want to go to a Shakespeare play. And mom's like, okay, look, here's one we can go to. So seriously, have no memory of what the hell was going on um, uh, with the play or anything. And I've never read it. <laughs> um, I The Children's Theater in Minneapolis did Midsummers. I think that was the first production I saw where I actually knew what was going on. Um, I've seen As You Like It at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which was amazing. I got free tickets through school and went with a bunch of classmates. And 
I was like laughing and slapping my leg and generally acting like an idiot because it was hysterically funny and my classmates were looking at me like what the fuck are you <laughs> laughing about I don't understand I'm like well it's because you're morons but whatever um let's see I've seen Macbeth my, my SCA group in Boston did King Lear about 10 years ago which was pretty incredible to pull off King Lear as an amateur group. Um, they did Macbeth maybe five years ago. Well, it was more than that. Um, and there's Shakespeare on the Common every summer. And some time ago, I saw them do Hamlet. Um, I don't remember what they did this summer. I wasn't able to go. So I've seen quite a bit. Uh, the Actors Shakespeare Project in Boston just finished up a run of Henry VIII, which I didn't get to see, but some friends of mine went and said that it was a very interesting interpretation of the life of Henry VIII. Very, very interesting. A good like, interesting or a bad interesting? As, as in, wow, here's some propaganda. <laughs> it ends with, well, apparently um, Anne Boleyn is presented as totally not interested in being queen at all, ever. This has just all sort of happened. Um, <clears throat> it ends with Elizabeth's christening, where her godfather, who I believe Shana said it was Mowbray, is her godfather gives like a 10 minute monologue about how awesome a queen Elizabeth is going to be. Mind you, this is what she's a baby. And she's going to be the greatest thing England has ever seen, ever, ever, ever in the history of ever. And also she's totes gonna remain a virgin forever. And then when she's done and she dies, uh, then James is just gonna be the best thing. And it will not shock you to learn that this was apparently written not long after James came to the throne. <laughs> so, yeah, as, as an example of Shakespeare knowing his audience, it's a pretty good one. Well, Shakespeare wasn't, as much as he was a writer for the people, he was also an inherently political writer. You have to have the approval of the monarch on your side. That's yeah. why with Macbeth, who the real Macbeth was not this, you know, sort of maniacal, guilt-ridden uh, monarch murderer with crazy wife, but Macduff happens to be an ascent, uh, happens to be related to the then king, James VI of Scotland, first of England. So of course you're going to have Macduff to be the, the benevolent sure. hero of the story. Right. And you don't want to lose your head. Right, and you're certainly going to, you know, have this ghost procession of kings that give James the Sixth legitimacy from Robert the Bruce on down. Everything's hunky-dory. Please. Hey, he... don't piss off the Scottish guy who's running your country. <laughs> I mean, Mary Wives of Windsor was written basically by order of Elizabeth. She wanted a story where Falstaff falls in love, right? And that's how Mary Wives of Windsor came into being? Well, Falstaff's always been an incredibly popular character, and he still is to this day. He's kind of one of the 
the great plummy British roles that you play when you're an actor you get to a certain age and you're too fat to be King Lear um we talked about you know the schools kind of forcing us to watch the movies now um in canada or at least in the ontario uh school system uh there's one shakespeare play per year of your of your high school years so you do nowadays i guess the kids do four at the time i was in school you did five because there were five years um (laughs) So we had a lot of Shakespeare. I don't. I actually don't remember if the Kenneth Branagh movies were some of the ones we watched. I think we did watch Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet for for the year we did Hamlet. That's a lot of movie right there. That is just a straight up <laughs> adaptation of the play. So you're pushing three hours. Maybe. Or was it? Because and I also have vague memories though of Mel Gibson being Hamlet. Mm. Yeah. There were a lot of adaptations. We did want to mention Kenneth Branagh just because, you know, he did so much to reinvigorate the let's put Shakespeare on screen. And of course, they're fabulous. Um, let's talk about them. Do we want to talk about the uh, Much Ado one first just because it's fun and we love Much, much Ado? <laughs> oh, Ken and M, you are my 90s OTP. <laughs> I know, they're just, it yeah. was kind of this like. They did this just so they could be in love as Benedict and Beatrice on screen, didn't they? Yes, and and you know what the really unfortunate thing is, which I didn't realize until I started, um, I was talking before we started recording about a fugue state I went into while on Amazon, and one of the things that appeared after this fugue state was over was the Sense and Sensibility Diaries and production script, which includes, like, writing sense and sensibility sort of helped her pull herself out of the depression after she and Ken split and the while doing pre-production for sense and sensibility she started seeing posters for Machado and it was because that was right about the time that Machado came out and she said that it was deeply and kind of profoundly painful Aww. to see those <laughs> damn you Ken why did you cheat on Heart with Hell and the Bottom Carter yeah. <sighs> Much Ado was this version of Much Ado was one of Kate Beckinsale's very first roles. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's so young in there. She's nigh unrecognizable. <laughs> yeah. So baby faced. So baby faced. Back when she was going to be serious. One of the things I love about Kenneth Branagh's adaptations of Shakespeare is that he has. A combination of really on-point casting and really, really random casting. And Brian Blessed. And Brian Blessed. And Brian well, Blessed. You have the Don Pedro and Don John are played by... that wrong. Brian Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you aren't loud enough. Do you want to say that again? <laughs> no, because I don't want to blast out anybody's ears. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about that when we get to As You Like It. And we're getting to Kenneth Branagh's As You Like It because things to say <laughs> oh yes we'll get there but in terms of the casting like if you look at what you do you have don pedro and don john being played by denzel washington and keanu reeves and any of you watch hamlet everyone turns up in hamlet like every actor ever you could t- take a drink every time an actor you recognize turns up in Branagh's hamlet you will not make it to the play within a play <laughs> you will have hit the ground you will be as dead as york you will be gone <laughs> It took until Steven Spielberg's Lincoln for there to be another movie with that level of I recognize that actor drinking game potential. Yeah. 
And Robert Sean Leonard was Claudio in the Much Ado. Kind of like, oh, also Babyface. It's so Screw cute. you, Claudio. <laughs> There was this Tumblr I found. It was a really fun, just um, Shakespeare macro. So like screenshots from Shakespeare movies. And they had that scene where Claudia finds out that Hero was innocent. And like Robert Sean Leonard starts like, oh, poor Hero. And uh, they was captioned, oh, the delicious tears of a douchebag. Who knows he's done wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the sheer sort of darkness of Much Ado is often ignored by be it deliberately or otherwise by a lot of people who talk about much to do because they focus so much on Beatrice and Benedict they forget the entire thing about a woman being shamed because someone says to someone that she might not be a virgin and she's publicly humiliated for it mm-hmm. yeah but then Dogberry and Michael Keaton was a good Dogberry <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's basically Beetlejuice and I'm fine with that yeah um yeah so much Ado is always fun. His Hamlet was so, I don't know, grandiose. It captures the scale, and I think that's one of the things Brown is actually very good at doing. Mm-hmm. Because Hamlet's an epic play, and it needs a decidedly... Have we play. ever had Hamlet played by an actual teenager? I yes. mean, I realize I have in a big adaptation, like a big name adaptation? Not in a film that I could name, but I think the most famous example of that happening in the stage in Britain in recent times would be when Ben Wishaw played him and he was only 23. Mm-hmm. Unless that's closer. Because they tend to always cast, you know, Hamlet, and I understand maybe upping like Romeo and Juliet's age a little bit, although their actions make more sense if you remember that they're teenagers and, st- and therefore stupid. Well, the most recent movie of them was with teenagers, although... That was apparently crap because well, for some reason Julian Fellows decided, you know what, this needs it needs me to, you know, jig up the dialogue a little bit. No, but the uh, Frank yeah. Frenelli version was teenagers. I mean, they were actually fourteen and sixteen. That's the yeah, one. Yeah, she she couldn't she, she wasn't allowed to watch it because her breasts were in it. Her own breasts. <laughs> because she's too tender to see her own breasts or something. Pretty much. Oh, I love that. We'll talk about that one too because. Oh, I love it. But yeah, how, how old was Kenneth Brown? Like, Hamlet was 96. 96. Um, so he would his, have been in the mid-30s. Henry V was 89. He would be 36. Yeah, he would have been yeah. probably like 35 when they filmed or something. He was probably more age-appropriate when he played Hal than when he played Hamlet. The thing I remember about his Hamlet is, of course, Kate Winslet as Ophelia. Mm-hmm. And that weird and overly sexualized breakdown when she's dry humping the floor. Oh yeah, it's very awkward. And I think we did watch it in class because it was very awkward. Well, there's an interesting comparison to be made between the way that the supposed loss of hero's virtue is handled in Much Ado compared to the way it's handled in Hamlet. Because one's a comedy, so it's obviously written up as, oh, it was a big mistake, wedding. And with a feel, she doesn't really get a chance to, in any way, redeem herself or have anyone redeem her because, you know, the pond is calling. Mm-hmm. And of course, then, you know, I loved her with 10,000 or 40,000 brothers with all their love could not make up my sum. And you're like, a little too late, is the douchebag? <laughs> Maybe shouldn't ha- we should have told her that. Get over yourself, Hamlet. Yeah. <sighs> Supposed One to be of your... the things I we were to set uh, an assignment in university, and it was to take any play in the world ever and write a piece on how you would reimagine it. 
and the one I was tempted to do was to do Hamlet, but have Hamlet be played by a woman and have Ophelia be played by a man, mm-hmm. if only for the get me to a nunnery scene, just to show how much of a major sexist dick it makes him and to have that flipped with a woman in the role. Because it's not unheard of for women to play Hamlet. Mm-hmm. A few years ago as well, Fiona Shaw played Richard II. Ooh. I know, right? Ooh. I know, there's a, another theater group that some friends of mine are a part of where they do staged readings and they're doing um, Taming of the Shrew next and they're gender swapping everything. Excellent. About <laughs> bloody time. <laughs> that, Which that, that has made a number of women very unhappy because they want to play Kate. And the director's like, tough. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet is, oh, um, as a Russian, the thing about Hamlet is that a very famous um, singer-songwriter played him on the stage. And I think actually to great acclaim, even in, in England, um, Vladimir Vysotsky played him once, and he was talking about getting the role. And how much it means he even and he later wrote like a poem about it called my hamlet um it, it was kind of an interesting minimalist production kind of just him in black on an uh, on an empty stage a lot of the time but I, I just remember seeing this interview and he was talking about how much the role means and how you know he's like when you're if you're a woman like you wouldn't have as much what do they have to choose from like lady Macbeth maybe Mm-hmm. is the one Shakespeare role they can have that to like really sink the teeth into, whereas as a man you have so many great ones, but Hamlet is like one of them. And I don't know, I just, uh, I thought of that when you were talking about how the woman said they wanted to play Kate. Yeah. yeah. There has been a lot of shakeups recently. I believe it was, I don't know if it was the Royal Shakespeare Company or if it was the Donmar Warehouse in London did a performance of Julius Caesar and it was entirely female. Mm-hmm. And Emma Thompson recently said that she wanted to see more of that on the stage and in the screen. Although well, the example she used was wanting to be the female Sherlock Holmes, which I will fund. Like I will go out and do whatever I can to get that made if we need it. But <laughs> I will that start that an important. Emma, just let us know. <laughs> I feel like I could hear listeners just screaming in our ear. You're talking about gender swap Shakespeare. Talk about Helen Mirren. Oh, Emma Tempest. Yeah. <laughs> None, none, none of us have seen it because poor Scrubs. <laughs> it did not, to be in our defence, um, it did not get a very wide release. Um, even when I when it came out in Edinburgh, it didn't come out for like weeks until after it came out, and it was only out for about a week. But it is one of the more interesting plays to gender swap because that is a play with only one woman in it, and she is probably the just one of the most reductive women in Shakespeare. Poor Miranda. She exists to be bossed around by her dad and then married off to the first guy who's not trying to constantly rape her. Mm-hmm. That, the Tempest was another one as a little girl. I found like that relationship very romantic. <laughs> Miranda and whatever the guy's name was. <laughs> no, I can't even remember his name. Um, Ferdinand, was it? Was it Ferdinand? Yeah, Ferdinand, I think you're right. <laughs> and then... Let me look. We like I said, I haven't seen it either. But let me just say that I'm sure Helen Mirren can be fabulous in any Shakespeare role you put her in. Well, the big thing you have to tackle with the Tempest is turning that father-daughter relationship into a mother-daughter one. How does that or inherently change? The... Oh, they didn't change well, the it gender. Was, no, it's, it's still she's still a woman. She's played by Felicity yeah. Jones. Yeah. But the um, because when that's done as a sort of possessive male figure who knows everything and he's all powerful and don't you dare cross him. 
um, and to combine that, to do that with a woman, I think would be really interesting. So I do want to see it. I'm interested to see how they handle arguably one of Shakespeare's more colonial pieces. Because mm-hmm. the way that Caliban is treated, for example, and in this one, he is explicitly played by a black actor. He's played by Jamin Honsu. Mm-hmm. And Ben Wishaw plays Ariel. And he's very pretty as Ariel from what I've seen. <laughs> we have strayed away from Kenneth Branagh, but I am pulling it back That's... to that as you like it because time to say things. <laughs> things. We have things. <sighs> for those who don't know, I think this might have been the last one he's done. It was in 2006. I'm not sure if he's done... Um, any of the Shakespeare adaptations since? Not since. He's done, he did Henry V, he did Much Ado About Nothing, he did, he did Hamlet, Lost. he did Love's Labour's Lost, which I have a really soft spot for, even though it's terrible, and he did the As You Like It. Yeah, okay. which has been, so that's been his last one. He's now doing Cinderella, which isn't Shakespeare. So, Okay, so As You Like It <clears throat> is a play... Now, the play is set in France, right? Because it's the forest of I mean, something, right? Um, but Kenneth Branagh decided, let's set it in Japan. In, what was it, the 1800s, maybe? I believe uh, there was a justification that there were, you know, Western, probably consular, like, enclaves. There were definitely European colonies in Japan at the time. Right. So let's say it's taking place there. So we have a lot of white people in Japan. Um, And which, you know, if you wanted that aesthetic, so like the samurai, and we have the the Brian Blessed plays both dukes. (laughs) Brian Blessed. Um... And one of them is kind of obsessed with local culture and he's dressing up in samurai armor. And you know what? If you wanted that aesthetic and you found history that you could bend to justify it, fine. The part where it lost me is the part where the Japanese peasants are played by white actors. Why? And it's Don't... such a strange moment as well because Orlando and Oliver are played by black actors. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. This is not about let's just make it all surreal by making it all white because you do have black actors in there. And as we've seen with not much ado about nothing, this isn't something that Branagh has a problem with. In many ways, it's quite admirable because Shakespearean roles really aren't given to black actors even to this day. But it's so. Oh, but James Earl of... Jones has been King Lear once. I just want to mention. Well, with a voice like that, he's got to be King Lear. <laughs> I don't know if it was... I think it was on the stage, so I don't know that there's a recording anywhere. But back to... The, yeah. So that was really off-putting and really ostracizing. Because it was hard for me to then give credence to the play when, like, I kept on looking at those actors and going, like, but not Asian. Like, unless I'm just suddenly gone race-blind. Not Asian, right? <laughs> Why? So it was... But that's not where the weirdness ends. Um, Romola Garay, who may be familiar to some of our viewers because she played uh, Emma in a, the I, that ITV adaptation series that we talked about mm-hmm. in our Jane Austen episodes. Uh, she's lovely. Really interesting. She plays Celia. So she plays the protagonist's cousin. Protagonist being Rosalind, who's play, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. So Celia kind of tags along with Rosalind run, in their running away to the forest and all that. And... She's played, I have seen it described thusly, 
this is not me. This is a quote from another another viewer. I'm pretty sure Kenneth Branagh told Romla Garay to play Celia high as a kite the entire thing. You could even tell <laughs> that moment in the middle where she switches from weed to hardcore mushrooms and just goes on a trap. <laughs> and that is very accurate. There Romla- are moments in the film where you think that she might be getting high with Brana because there's a bit where, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a bit where Orlando fights a sumo wrestler? I think there is. I feel like I want. I would have originally said maybe Brana just wanted to haul it in Japan, but it wasn't even filmed in Japan. It was filmed it's... entirely in Britain. <laughs> so, like, somebody wandered into a museum of Japanese history in Britain and had an acid trip. Not in an I like to think that that was Brana that just got high. On <laughs> it's, it's quite possibly the only explanation for this movie. It would explain his version of the magic flute as well, which is very trippy. He was making like three movies at the same time there because he also did the remake of Sloop. So maybe he was just high. We should start this rumor. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, people. (laughs) I think I found one Japanese name in the list of actors on on IMDb now. Yeah, same. (laughs) Having said, I, I think people are always surprised to find out that Brian Blessed can actually act and he actually has volume control. (laughs) <laughs> it's but at this point he's Brian Blessed. Why should he have to? Is the question. It's fair you point. present a very persuasive point. It's fair point. <sighs> Glorious anthem. Square brackets. The hollow crown. Close Glorious well, anthem. And this is the point where my Tumblr pages open at pictures of Tom Hiddleston with his shirt off, right? I have Uh, promised when we schedule this that this will not be two hours of us going, damn, Tom Hiddleston looks good in leather pants. But Tom Hiddleston, for the record, looks really good in leather pants. His his image... Oh, absolutely. His image as Hal has become a macro on Tumblr, which is uh, labeled, I like my men how I like my books, well read and leather bound. There is a reason Tom Hiddleston is on my list of posh boys it is acceptable for a lefty to fancy. (laughs) It's like him, Damien Lewis, Eddie Redmayne, and um, I'm sure there's someone else on that list. Is Ben Wishaw a posh boy? I don't know, actually. I can't fancy Ben Wishaw. He looks so much like my best friend. So, <laughs> I can't do that. Although my best friend is slowly turning into Jason Schwartzman from Scott Pilgrim, so... <laughs> it's very hard to fancy boys when you're a political Scotswoman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I, I was going You know what? That. I have made a fair go at it. It has not been limiting for me at all. But, okay. Side note, if you're going to pair over certain actors on Twitter... Make sure their wife doesn't have Twitter so they don't start favoriting your tweets. Awkward. Amanda Abington? No, it was Jared Harris's wife. <laughs> I know. Um, so the Hollow Crown is um, a series, a 2012 uh, series of television films. Um, it, was, it was produced for BBC Two. And it took um, Shakespeare's historicals, Richard II, Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part Two, Henry V, and kind of produced them as a series, which makes sense because within Shakespeare, um, he Shakespeare alters history. 
he's kind of historical fanfic. He's not historically accurate. You know, he writes some people out. He conflates historical figures. He changes ages, and that's fine. Um, but he's consistent internally mm-hmm. within the changes he makes. So if you read those plays, they make sense as a series. I want to talk about the, before we get to, you know, fantastic performances and whatnot, the thing about the Hollow Crown, when I actually saw it start to finish and not just watching, you know, swoon-worthy Tom Hiddleston bits on YouTube, is that I actually did not feel like the Henrys fit together with the Richard. It was very strange. The... The tone was different, the look was different, but more importantly is that the Henrys only take place historically, basically within the span of five years of like the events of Richard, or maybe ten of Richard II, you know, like it's a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I've even reread the Shakespeare just to make sure Shakespeare didn't alter that part because at the end of Richard II, he has the newly crowned Henry IV, you know, talk about his, pro- his prodigal son. So he obviously he didn't change the timeline that much, and yet... The movies make it look like 40 years have passed. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a very strange viewing experience. That is, that is kind of a criticism, but that is not to say that any of them were bad separately. So starting with Richard II, directed by Rupert Gould or Gold? I'm not entirely sure. Henry, uh, Rupert Gould. He's Gould. one of the, the darlings of the British theater scene. Uh, with Ben Whishaw as King Richard II... Um, Rory Kinnear is Bolingbroke and it had Patrick Stewart, it had David Suchet and James Purefoy severely underused because he's sexy and should be used more <laughs> Clemence Posey who Harry Potter fans will recognize as uh, Richard's queen you know, even though she was nine years old at the time but as we said, Shakespeare did not consider that any reason to not write Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it's it's so candy-colored compared to the Henrys. <laughs> I, Richard I think... II is a really strange play anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's one of his earlier works, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's one that does, that does tend to be ignored a lot, but Richard II himself is a pretty fascinating character. Yeah, I'd never read um, the play I'd never seen it and I never really thought about Richard II much as a person he's just sort of you know there certainly he's <laughs> overshadowed by the probably nephew killing Richard III yeah and when I, when I was watching it and I was live tweeting it a friend of mine goes this production's really weird I've only seen the Ian McKellen, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> that was Richard III. And he went, oh, that explains why I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Wisha sort of took Richard on this tack of... Uh, it's sort of like... He sort of seems to think that he's Jesus. And the, the original image. Richard II was put on the throne at the age of ten. So, if you've had that sort of built into your head that you're the most yeah. important person in the world from the age of ten, you're probably going to think you're Jesus, Which and really you're going to grow your facial hair. And Henry the Sixth a lot too. Anyway, um, 
Am I wrong? <laughs> You're not. <laughs> um, and oh, I don't remember where I was going with this. But yeah, he's just sort of not quite on the same same plane of reality as everyone else in the world. And everyone's just sort of like, okay, King's doing his crazy thing again. Uh. Well, well, the experts <laughs> believe that Richard II may have, if he didn't have mental problems, he probably had at least some kind of personality disorder, particularly towards the end of his reign. Mm-hmm. He was good looking, he was intelligent, he had a certain charisma, he'd been on the throne since the age of 10, and he, you know, no one was going to mess with that, really. Until they did. Yeah. It's really funny, and this is something this movie does that I think a lot of Shakespeare adaptations do, is uh, the Tower of London is... Okay, okay, first of all, he's basically naked in a cave. Mm Mm-hmm. The Tower of London was the actual royal castle? He wasn't going to be naked in a cave. He was going to be dressed, probably in a room. (laughs) In in actually a fine room, you know? But... So those scenes where after he's kind of dethroned and, oh, here's Richard sitting, like that Jesus look that you're talking about, Raiden? Well, when mm-hmm. he's just kind of in a loincloth diaper. Yep. What? Why? This seems to be something that has carried over into the current London production of Richard II starring David Tennant with the world's most ratty, disgusting-looking extensions in his hair. <laughs> if you haven't seen them, just... Keep in mind that they're temporary and they will be taken out and he will return to his fabulous, good-looking hair self in the future. But they really are something else. They really are. I, I do appreciate Daniel that. Radcliffe's is better. Oh, this, the Snape extensions on Daniel Radcliffe are by far superior than whatever is hanging off of David Tennant's skull. It looks dead. It looks like it's going to crawl over and like suffocate him. <laughs> Which would actually be quite fetching for Richard II, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I do appreciate kind of all the the older actors I love, and then you know, like Patrick Stewart as John of Gaunt, and David Suchet as Duke of York, and that was fabulous to see. Um, so it was, but. I don't know if they were trying to make a point because, you know, Richard's court is all overhanging with like pastel colored tapestries and hangs off the wall and it's all summer gardens. And and then we, we go to uh, the Jeremy Irons, Henry the Fourth Part One and black, dark stone. It's not the most subtle metaphors they're going for, but that is a, a recurring theme throughout the play is the idea that Back then, the idea of the king was put on his throne by God. Mm. And if you remove that and you kill someone and get put on the throne yourself, what's to stop someone else from doing that to you? Because the sacred, the, you know, the sacred nature of that position has been removed by you. So it would really be no one's fault but yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you've got Jeremy Irons, you really have to have him mope around a little bit with that voice. But exactly. And then have Tom Hiddleston do his voice. Oh, so good. oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to delay the Hedleston talk for a while. We really should talk about, like, the important stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Whoa, whoa. What well, are the, you saying? So, yeah, so but it's the switchover. It's just not metaphoric. As I said, because the, the actor goes, you know, so King Henry IV switches from Rory Kinnear to Jeremy Irons, and these events, which were really all taking place at the same time, kind of all the, the this rebellion that King Henry IV was facing, 
kind of was still a, an extension of the unrest that he himself was part of as he was deposing Richard II. Um, and now it looks like literally decades have passed. And I'm trying to remember how much time actually passes in the play because it is a lot of time and enough for Hal to grow up and at least be in his late teens, early twenties. No, because yeah. the very last thing of the play Richard II, the very last theme, scene is newly crowned Henry IV going and where's my son and like oh out drinking with his friends oh again so he's already right. a debauched teenager. So it couldn't have been that much time, you know. So even Shakespeare kept kind of to the five year within the next five years, ten years timeline. Maybe Patrick Stewart just wasn't available for the filming. <laughs> well, he would have... No, he would have died already by then, John of Gaunt, right? So... You mean Rory Kinnear? For... Yeah, sorry. The, the thing is, I really like Rory Kinnear as an actor. He does a lot of work on Shakespeare. He's, he was recently at Iago on stage. You know, he is really solid Shakespearean actor. I think he would have been a, a great... Um, on the other hand, I mean, Rory Kinnear... Oh, well, wait a second, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait... Rain. Oh, you're right. It's only 14 years. Yeah. Rory so, Kinnear could not have played Tom Hiddleston's father. They're the same age. That is very true. I well, would sacrifice any amount of historical accuracy for Tom Hiddleston as Prince Hal. I'm sorry, Rory Kinnear, but, you know, we have to make sacrifices. <laughs> it's okay. You're in Bond movies. You don't have to worry. Yeah. And... I mean, you have different directors with different kind of visions going at these plays, so. I appreciate the continuity from the Henry IV to the Henry V that allows us to keep Tom Hiddleston in leather pants for an additional movie. <laughs> yeah, they talked about that. That They were discussing whether or not they were going to be able to do it and if Tom was interested. And Tom was like, well, at first... <laughs> It's a little bit concerned because that's a lot of work. But the speech—I mean, he's so good at that on. speech. Come on. So I think he—I think he said that he took a break between the Henry the Fourths to go and do the Avengers and <laughs> come back. Have you seen that video of him crying on the red carpet when the uh, reporter asked him, "What? how do you feel about this being your last Avenger movie? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I just, oh, God. He, he, how is he real? Even my mother fancies him. <laughs> how, he's so... There, there's a post going around Tumblr saying, I bet when Tom Hiddleston was born, he apologized for the trouble and then told the nurse she was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that seems about right <laughs> yeah so he plays Prince Hal and really the first shining moment he has in the trilogy like I mean it's a it's four movies but he's part of kind of a trilogy um, is when his speech uh, the Prince Hal speech about how when he's king he's gonna come out like a sun from behind clouds you know and if he always behaved well people would just expect it of him so this this is actually his misbehavior and bad reputation all part of kind of a cunning plan and the movie does the speech as a voiceover which I think is great mm-hmm. I think the the thing I really love about all of these is how well they turned plays into cinematic experiences. 
the pacing, kind of the editing choices were all really well done. And I think it's part of the reason why they, they've kind of stirred up so much talk. And it's not just because uh, Tom Hiddleston's Prince Hal. These productions are amazingly well. They're good. They're really good movies. Um, they do it for the histories as well, because nobody adapts the histories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and not for the screen anyway. It just—it's not something that really happens. You get the comedies, the tragedies, and the histories are just sort of shoved to the side. Mm-hmm. I thought the BBC did that. I mean, because BBC don't actually do Shakespeare very often. For all of the sort of big plummy historical dramas and things that we we do here, we tend to go more like Victorian era, Austen era. They don't go Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's considered, and for them to do this as well, and it is still a risk because so many people even today consider something like Henry the Fourth to be an incredibly inaccessible niche area of entertainment, and they did very well here. I, it's mm-hmm. certainly, I don't think, was inaccessible at all. I think it was very accessible. I think their Falstaff, uh, played by Simon Russell Beale, is great. He's the like, tone perfect, and the relationship between Falstaff and Hal, uh, which probably carries the movies. I think if that doesn't work, the movies fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a kind of a foil to the relationship between Henry the Fourth and, and his son Hale. It's I that scene where in in the tavern where uh, Falstaff and Hal are, are putting on kind of this play to entertain everybody and Falstaff is like, I'll pretend to be your dad and you get to excuse yourself. And then Hal says, no, I'll pretend to be my dad. And Tom Hiddleston does an amazing impression of Jeremy Irons. In Shakespearean. <laughs> it's <laughs> incredible. There was flappy hands and Twitter explosions. Yeah. And then Falstaff uh, pretend to be how there's the speech about how, you know, oh, yeah, all my friends are kind of trash. But this one guy, Falstaff, he truly loves the prince and please don't banish him. And it like turns into this sincere moment. Panish Knob on his Falstaff's company. It like it made me tear up. Even with Falstaff being kind of the self-serving thief and rogue that he is, like that moment looking at Hal, kind of trying to like reestablish their connection and their friendship, it mm-hmm. like it honestly makes me tear up. Like, Simon Russell Beale is amazing as Falstaff. Yeah, <laughs> so great. Um, with Jeremy Irons, uh, I remember seeing, there's a scene where King Henry IV slaps his son, slaps Hal, mm-hmm. and there's like a, a quote from Tom Hiddleston where Jeremy Irons is like, yeah, it actually hurt. Like, he kept on slapping me quite hard. <laughs> but as he was playing Henry IV, all I could think of is how in that role he reminds me of Rodrigo Borgia and always having trouble with his sons. Like, why can't the sons just behave? Yeah. <laughs> and do what he wants. Uh, oh, Joe Armstrong is hot, Hotspur. Hamming it up. Hamming it up. I really wish that Lady Percy had had more than three scenes in the entire thing. Because I love me Michelle Dockery. And I love watching her do her thing. And she's so pretty. <laughs> and she's so amazing. And she deserves better than Downton Abbey, let's be honest. <laughs> but, yeah, she... <sighs> Joel Armstrong is Hotspur. That moment when he just sings, I do not care. And you're like, why are you singing that? Why is that? <laughs> oh, it was so weird. It was so hammy, but so fun. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Henry IV's really, parts really do kind of 
flow into each other very naturally. I mean, they're kind of a continuation of the same story. And the, the big boom, you know, the break hell from Falstaff at the very end of the fort mm-hmm. is, I don't know, it's a big deal. Like that moment. Yeah. But I do like how they keep on exploring it in five by bringing back um, kind of the the other friends mm. he had and during the war and as soldiers in the army. Do, what do you feel about the the transition from the Henry the Fourth to the Fifth? Fairly smooth. Yeah. I think it helps yeah. by having the same actor in the role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how it would have felt if it wasn't the same actor, because where's the payoff, right? Mm-hmm. Henry the Fourth Part Two ends with Henry V being crowned. But if if all of this time, all of his talk about how I only behave like this because I have a plan about the kind of king I want to be and how I want people to see me and all of that, if, if he, we didn't actually get to see Prince Hal becoming Henry V, if we didn't have that payoff, I don't think it would have worked quite as well. Yeah. Um, Agreed. So there's a lot more consistency of tone. It's not like Richard II really feels like kind of the odd man out between the four because it doesn't have that consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, so Henry V, then you know you get to see the young king, but that's where he has that speech. Um, his own kind of friends are, you know, like the the inspiring speech to the soldiers. I saw some talk show host making him do it during the talk show and he still knew it and it's just so mesmerizing watching him do the speech mm-hmm. I would follow you into battle Tom Hiddleston can the fifth <laughs> it's one of the great speeches in the English language yeah absolutely yeah and it's still and used by so many people in, in politics and in military as this big inspirational thing which makes me a bit sick but mm-hmm. there's so much power behind those words cry god for Harry England and St. George yeah. And I'm saying that as someone who isn't English. <laughs> and I mean, that's how, when I was in London in 2010, it was during the World Cup. So there was English flags everywhere and people were watching the games all the time. And it was really kind of fascinating because I don't watch football of either variety. <laughs> and just seen everybody like deeply invested in European football which I'd never actually seen in person before was fascinating and like the entire city of London was definitely permeated with this England Harry and St. George feeling focused on the football team so cool yeah that wasn't quite like that up here (laughs) I, I believe that I believe that. I was banned from talking about it on Twitter with some of my English friends because I was actually <laughs> rooting against it. There is one area where I turn into a touch of a nationalist with Scotland, and that is when England play football. I will um, root for whoever they are playing against. <laughs> and the day that England played the game that eventually knocked them out of the tournament, I was in Bath. And I went to the Evensong service at Bath Abbey, and the I don't know what the proper term is. Pastor? Minister? Vicar? Whatever. Okay. The vicar stood up and said, we really want to thank you all for coming when it seems like the whole of Bath is cram- crammed into very small spaces where they're being very, very loud. <laughs> and we'd like to announce a change to the song 
for the service, which was originally going to be low, the final sacrifice. And it was thought by some that that would be inappropriate and uh, possibly tempting fate. So we changed it to something else. <laughs> How considerate of the Church of England. <laughs> And by tying it back to Henry V, Henry V is a play that's been used for political purposes for years, for generations. I mean, the um, Laurence Olivier version was made during World War II, and Winston Churchill explicitly instructed Olivier to make it into uh, almost propaganda, something to boost the morale of the country. Mm-hmm. So there are scenes that are cut, and, and Henry is made to be far more of a sort of straight-up hero than he is in the play, because he is pretty ambiguous at times in that play. He's a he's a strategist, he's a politician, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. the Olivia one, he is really just made into sort of, you know, rah, rah, let's get in there, lads. And it's really an excuse for Laurence Olivier to, you know, be Laurence Olivier. Yeah. <laughs> Who, by the way, is overrated. I'm stating that now. <laughs> oh boy, we're about to receive our first hate mail. I'm loving the idea of just like Olivier fanboys and fangirls <laughs> just coming over and just taking over. <laughs> How dare thou? Yeah, and the the Brana St. Crispin's Day speech, I think it's Roger Ebert who said something along the lines of, look, it's really hard to do something like this that everyone knows, and it seems like it's trite and overdone, and then by the end of it, I was ready to sign up for the army, so. (laughs) And then Hilliston does it in such a different way. And almost conversational, and I am totally not shitting my pants, so you shouldn't either. I swear to God, totally not shitting my pants. <laughs> so not. These leather pants are clean, my gender. <laughs> What's that smell? It's not me. <laughs> um, and the funny thing about it is, is I, I do remember reading this play in Russian because I remember finding that moment the romantic moment in the play where it's really King Henry V proposing to Princess Catherine. And I don't know why as a kid I thought there was any romance in that, but I did. So when I got to see it played out with Tom Hiddleston on screen, I was quite grateful. (laughs) It was very sweet. I mean, that's another example of Hal's skill as a political strategist, but the way that Hiddleston does it is just, you know, ovary-exploding gif everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to believe that Prince Catherine is actually resisting kissing at the end of this because, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and finally, finally, I was able to get what makes the the, I'm learning English scene funny. Yeah, there's this weird little scene in the in the middle of the play where the French princess asks her um, nurse, I guess, attendant, who has spent some time in England to teach her some English, and it's all about body parts. Yeah, and the the last couple turn into super rude jokes in French, <laughs> and I believe, and Kaylee, maybe you can confirm this, that there are super rude jokes in English in the in the French somewhere? It's Somebody told I've read me it, that. But assuming it's Shakespeare, the it, chances are there's going to be at least, at least one dick joke. Yeah. For all of the complaints about Shakespeare being inaccessible language for the 21st century, that man pioneered 
the your mother and the dick jokes. Yeah. Oh, hold on. And when I... you're like 15 years old and you're reading um, some of these plays and you just realize what he's actually talking about, right. it's revelatory. What exactly did you think those country matters were? <laughs> oh. I still remember our high school teacher having to explain to us what country matters were. He was like, <laughs> okay, this is a joke. Class, blank faces. Him, emphasizing the part of the word with his hands. Country matters. Class. So anytime anyone tells you that you're writing, well, it's not Shakespeare, you can look at them and go, yeah, there's not enough dick jokes. (laughs) I love the fact that the, you know, the maturity basis for our, our culture, for our literature, for what we think of when we think of the classics is a guy who wrote plays for money for the people and liked to be kind of dirty, but not so dirty that he would piss off people, you know, because, you know, he doesn't want to lose his head over it. Right. Hey, Macduff was wonderful. Please don't kill me. <laughs> so, Hollow Crown, very good. Get the DVDs. You will not regret it. If you if you are one of those people who feel like the histories have been inaccessible, this is your access point. Yep. This is definitely your access point. In other news, Alina has stopped being a scrub and got uh, Joss Whedon's Much Ado in Blu-ray. <laughs> Yay! And finally saw it a while ago. Swear to God, Dogberry was the role that Nathan Fillion was truly born to play. (sighs) Everything else has been warm-up up up to this point. (laughs) Everybody's great in this, but, you know, as amazing as Nathan Fillion is as Dogberry, and I will not dispute anything that's been said about that, to me, the comedic highlight of the movie was Alexis Denisov as Benedict rolling, like, on the lawn in the bushes. (laughs) <laughs> trying to overhear a conversation in the house. It's it was you know t- it was Teletoon's level of physical comedy. <laughs> it was so funny. It was so funny. Um I really did like I loved it. I love how everybody's drunk in every single I think specifically every single scene has people pouring alcohol or drinking alcohol. Yep. At any hour of the day. They they come into the kitchen for breakfast in the morning and their breakfast is pouring wine. Into a full wine glass and downing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really good. I, 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 I see why everybody loved it now. It really was well done. And the house is beautiful. You know, the design by Joss Whedon's wife. It was shot in his location, his actual house. And it just shows you how, you know, it's not the grand budgets that make, <laughs> that make great Shakespeare. Shakespeare made great Shakespeare. And you just need actors and directors who understand it and they need nothing they need no wardrobe and no stage they will bring it to life for you Mm -hmm. and i think this is kind of that a prime example of that um oh i I, every time i watch much ado i always love what the any particular adaptation decides to do with a hey nonny nonny song Mm -hmm. because they always turn it into some sort of like actual song that that is a recurring motif that can be sung (laughs) over various parts of the movie so that was very fun. Yep. Speaking of Much Ado, apparently the the Tenant Tate Much Ado DVD is on hold for unknown reasons for an indefinite time. There is a link at digital theater 
www.ghostbusters.co.uk. I think, I don't know, I will link it in the show notes where you can rent it for four pounds or buy it for like seven. Um, I haven't done that yet, mostly because I'm afraid my bank is going to freak out and go, oh my God, there's a charge from England on your debit card. We have to cancel it. And then I won't be able to get my money because my bank has done that before. And it made me sad. But I'm going to. Someday. <laughs> so that's where we are with that. They promised us a DVD and then they yanked it away because they, whoever they are, are a bunch of teases. Yeah, that's pretty... That's a dick move. Kaylee, you should go down and kick their butts. I've got a long enough list of people whose butts need kicked. I don't have time. Well, There's not enough hours in the day. You're Look, Scottish, that's what you do. A lot of them are probably down in London. You can get a whole money bunch done with, you know, like, what, a five-hour train trip? Five hours? That's optimistic. <laughs> well, I was possibly looking at train schedules from London to York to Edinburgh for reasons. <laughs> um, other adaptations of note, we, we kind of... Uh, sidetracked into a whole bunch when talking about the Kenneth Branagh ones, but I mean, there's so many. But uh, but there has been kind of an upswing recently. Like with that Coriolanus uh, that had uh, Ray Fiennes and Gerard Butler. Um, which I haven't seen, but Kaylee, you have, right? Yeah, it's one that does the modern day reimagining. It keeps all the original dialogue. It's set in modern day, quote unquote, Rome. But it's sort of a... Um, it's it's very like Eastern Europe war zone in the way that it tackles um, mm-hmm. the style of things in particular. Um, it was Ray Fine's first film as a director. I actually think he did a pretty admirable job because one, it's not the most well known play by Shakespeare, so you kind of have a little more leeway of what to do, but you also have to deal with the fact that the audience aren't immediately going to recognise it. And he surrounded himself with a really good supporting cast. Um, Coriolanus' mother is played by Vanessa Redgrave Uh, Jared Butler's in it and it's basically the only decent thing he's done in about six or seven years Uh, who else? Jessica Chastain is his wife Jessica Chastain's in it, Brian Cox is in it Um, James Nesbitt is in it sold yeah and it also features um, updates on what's happening in the world from the news anchor Jon Snow and they're delivered in Old English and it's really very funny and surreal. And I think Kaylee means there's an actual English news anchor that they're using to be the fictional news anchor, right? Yes. <laughs> That's the joke. That's kind of yeah. And the, the news anchor is called his name is John Snow. And you know, insert your Game of Thrones joke here. Does he know anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. You told me to insert it. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is. <laughs> Recently, he did a news report on a TV. There was a, a channel board did a TV show on how video games have changed the world. Oh my god! He does how... nothing. I saw that. You've seen that gif, right? Yes, Where no, Charlie I, Brooker has I, to keep mentioning to him, you know, women do play video games, and it, 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 every every single reply to that gif set was just, you know, nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> I was that the, the one where he's like, Twitter is a video game. Yes. I guess, yeah, it was like, Twitter is a video game. You play a persona of yourself and you get points by getting followers. Yeah, side note, if you haven't seen it, I think you can find it online. It's called you know, uh, Video Games Changed the World with Charlie Brooker. And he talks about the video games that have made the biggest mark. Um, and he ends it by saying the biggest video game right now is Twitter because you play as 
you know, a character, you build up points, you create alliances and such. So it's very interesting, although um, it was one of those things where every geek on the internet was going, why isn't insert here on the list? How dare you? And I was one of those people. <laughs> um, another uh, Shakespeare adaptation we haven't mentioned yet was the it was part of the Great Performances series, and it's a Macbeth where Patrick Stewart plays Macbeth. And it is... I was giving Kaylee and Raiden the background on my having seen it. I was having this Shakespeare craving night. It's going to be all Shakespeare all the time. Give me all of the much ados with the Kate Beckinsale one. And, and I don't know. And the, I saw the As You Like It. And I was watching everything. And it was all fluffy and bright and fun. And then I was like, ooh, Patrick Stewart was Macbeth. Um... I watched, I think, like, the first half an hour, and then I was like, oh, okay, I'm closing it down, I'm putting it where it cannot see me, I have looked into the abyss, and I do not want the abyss looking at me, because that Macbeth is, honest to God, a really good horror movie. <laughs> Kaylee, what did you say? Somebody described it as if Macbeth were Saw? <laughs> yeah, the review, because it, it's also an extremely long production, if I remember correctly. And it is just relentlessly violent. And, you know, it's hard to criticize Patrick Stewart because Patrick It's Stewart not a criticism. Play. It just, after that, uh, you know, the evening of cotton candy, Shakespeare comedies and romances, there was Macbeth. Uh, the looks and aesthetics seem to situated somewhere in Russia in the 40s or 50s. Kind of Stalinist Russia look to it. Um, v- gory dark like i said in a kind of, it has a horror movie aesthetic to it that scene where they meet the witches and their nurses and they're holding this figure made up of uh medical equipment and organs to look like a human including like blood bags and it's yeah, kind of viscerally mm, unpleasant so it was a very you know interesting experience and then the the castle it's kind of like this stark Kremlin-looking place, and you know the the bleak parties they're having, which he talks to his wife. So it was all really weird. Um, not in a, not in a bad way. I mean, it's certainly an experience. Uh, it's just this is not a version of Macbeth you could watch because you need just to be filled in. You know, you're 16 years old and you're studying the play and you need to be filled in. I would not recommend this one because it requires some emotional commitment to sit through it and, and watch it. Um, but if you are somebody who's interested in seeing the different adaptations of Shakespeare and, you know, you love the actors and you, and you want to look it up, it was uh, filmed in 2010. Uh, so it was the great performances Macbeth with Patrick Stewart in the title role. Um, it's, it's something to, to keep in mind if you, if you want a different experience of Shakespeare. But speaking of Macbeth, Michael Fassbender. Really? Yeah. And Marion Cotillard as Lady Macbeth. It was originally going to be Natalie Portman, and she dropped out. Thank goodness, because Marion Cotillard's Lady Macbeth is something I want to see. Yeah. I once heard of a production of Hamlet where, during the final sword battle with the poison swords, they kept nicking innocent bystanders. So by the end of the sword fight, the pile of bodies on stage was just ridiculous. As it should be with the history. <laughs> the Which one was it? Um, I think one of my high school teachers, and I think in this case we were studying Macbeth, uh, as we started in the beginning of the year, she looks at us and goes, let me spare you the suspense. This is a Shakespeare drama. Everybody dies. 
Uh, what other production? Cymbeline is an upcoming production that's coming out in 2014. I think it's kind of one of the not as well known. Is it a comedy romance? I think it's considered a romance. I think it's considered a romance. It's the Shakespeare play that gave us the name Imogen because originally it was Imogen with two N's and uh, typographic error led to it being an M. Trivia. Everybody loves trivia. Uh, so they're making this lesser known one into a movie. It's going to star Dakota Johnson as Imogen. Nobody say anything. Uh, it has Mila Jovovich, Ethan Hawke, Penn Badgley, Anton Yelchin, which is probably the sole reason I'll see this movie. Bill Pullman, Ed Harris, John Leguizamo. I'm just going down the list of names I recognize from IMDb. It's going to be a lot of names you recognize in this not very recognizable Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I haven't read Cymbeline. No, neither have I. It's one that's very seldom covered in curriculum of any kind, really. Yeah, and I mean, I studied Shakespeare in university, and even they didn't touch it. No, neither did we. Um, Shakespeare Retold. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have only seen Their Taming of the Shrew, which is amazing. Because um, it show- stars, I don't remember her name, but she's Moni Myrtle. Sure, um, Anderson. Anderson. As as Kate, and um, it's set in the Houses of Parliament, so she's on her rise to become Prime Minister. Well, she's running to be leader of the opposition. Right. And her PR team basically tell her that she's cold and abrasive, and it might soften her image if she gets married, and then this penniless nobleman comes in, he's played by Rufus Sewell, and sparks As fly. It should be. <laughs> and sparks fly, and it's pretty amazing. Um, I've also seen their Macbeth, which is set in a restaurant with James McAvoy and uh, Richard Armitage. Ooh, Keely Hawes is in that one. Yes, she's she's really good, um, Lady Macbeth, actually, yeah. considering the change that they do. The one thing that I didn't like about that production. And I get that it's very difficult to put the free witches into a modern setting. Mm-hmm. In the modern Macbeth, the free witches become bin men. Yeah. And I just found that so out of place. It just felt kind of out of place in comparison with everything else that was going on. Mm-hmm. Although having the ending change from them predicting that no man born of woman will kill, be able to kill Macbeth, to having that change to when pigs fly... And then having that be the police coming in, it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that felt like they might have like run out of a little idea there. <laughs> uh, having said that, I really like James McAvoy. So yeah, and I believe um, that in the Shakespeare we're told much ado, uh, when Claudio's like, oh God, hero, I'm so sorry, I'm such a douchebag, I will marry you anyway, and she's like, how about you go fuck yourself. It's definitely a more ambiguous ending. It's been a while since I've seen that. All I really remember about that is the fact that Bendick is played by Damian Lewis. Oh, Hero is okay. Billy Piper. Yeah. Oh, I really need to watch that then. I really like Billy Piper. I really do. I like Damian Lewis. I like him too. 
He's basically like a real Billy life Weasley. He's married to Narcissa Malfoy. It makes me so happy. <laughs> I really like Billy Piper's husband. Lawrence Fox. He was in the Lewis TV show. <laughs> and he's about two feet taller than her as well. It's amazing. <laughs> he's very tall. I like Billy Piper even before she was the world's worst Sally Lockhart. I've seen those and I really like those. I've seen those and that just made me think I really have to read those books. Yeah. Those books are amazing. You have to read them. Can you read them please? Those okay. are uh, by the writer of the Golden Compass. Philip Pullman. Right? Yep. Yes. You need to understand what my entire adolescence was spent yearning to be. Actually, that leads into an idea I have for a future show, which we'll talk about off the air, and we're going to leave people hanging because I'm like that. Because <laughs> yeah. we're teases. Because we're teases. Um, and we also haven't mentioned yet, but we wanted to, the kind of modern reimaginings. And this is where we uh, um, release a collective tearful sigh 10 things I hate about you (sighs) Heath Ledger we loved you I don't think this movie gets enough credit for just how good it is at taking a really sexist play and staying true to the the spirit of Shakespeare but modernizing it appropriately Mm -hmm. I don't think it gets enough credit for that and it also it's genuinely incredibly funny it's also very romantic it's one of the probably the more female positive kind of chick flicks that I, I can certainly think of. My friend used to joke that you know teenagers get one good teen comedy every generation, and this was ours. <laughs> I I love this movie, and it's just oh, oh well, on. the screen adaptation was by women, and it was was it directed by no, it wasn't directed by a woman, but it was the sc- the screenplay was written uh, by Karen McCullough and K- uh, Kirsten Smith. So that could account for, you know, as you were saying, Kayla, the challenge of adapting a plane to something that's not as uh, sexist. But it is, it is really funny, you know. Uh, Hello, Katarina. Made anybody cry today? No, but it's only no. four o'clock. <laughs> Kirsten Smith also wrote the adaptation of Legally Blonde, Ella Enchanted, and She's the Man, which is an adaptation of Twelfth Night. But she also did The Ugly Truth, which is that really disgusting movie with Katherine Heigl and Jared Butler. So, you know, we all need a paycheck. We'll excuse right. you. I thought she's the man was kind of cute. I haven't the... seen that one. I have. It's 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 kind of fluffy, but it's got Channing Tatum, which is really the only reason I watched. It. <laughs> <laughs> Don't judge me. You would too. No, I understand that. It's it's kind of a cute and fluffy thing where the um, what were they? Hold on. Um, inst- it it's it's set the high school and now it's like high school football teams and that's why she's pretending to be a man like she wants to play soccer teams there's soccer well, football in the european sense um and uh viola trying to be inclusive yeah viola wants to show a uh, kind of a dick ex-boyfriend who said the girls aren't good enough to play on a certain level uh what's what so she dresses up as a boy and takes her uh twin brother's place in a new school that he's going to and here's the funny part um I guess they found a guy who looks enough like, kind of like her, where, I mean, it's still not plausible at all, but kind of. No, the funny part is, when they dress Amanda Bynes as a boy, she looks exactly like Justin Bieber. I have pictures to prove this. I have pictures to prove this. It is hilarious. And we will link those to you. (laughs) Because we're not going to tease you. I mean, we're teases, but we're not, I mean... We're not going to tease you with that information and not let people see it. (laughs) 
Ten Things I Hate About You, um, by the way, also stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which is probably the reason Raiden has seen it. Um, I've seen it because, actually, I think I saw it for the first time because of Julia Stiles. Um, <laughs> Julia Stiles in the 90s was just one of my which, idols. But yeah, she was amazing. And, I mean, what I really like about that movie is I still see people on Tumblr reblogging GIFs from it and going, I love this movie! And there are people who I know are in their teens or early 20s. So it still has a lot of cultural relevancy, and it still holds up. Yeah, there's Great. a lot of the stuff that's very '90s about it. There's definitely a Valley Girl element to it, but there's the writing itself is solid and it holds up. And who no. doesn't love just how wonderfully gleeful Cat uh, Stratford is about just sort of destroying everyone's lives? <laughs> um, it's also incredibly quotable. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, there's uh, Alison Jenny is in it for about five minutes as a, yeah. an erotica writing teacher, and there's a bit where she says, "Was it um, go back to perceive you as yeah, people perceive you as somewhat tempestuous? Heinous bitch is the term. Heinous bitch. Often. You might want to work on and that. The, the the proud grin that Cat gives at that is just gives yeah, me like, oh, heinous bitch. I can work with that. No, his technical <laughs> retrieval operation was successful, by the way. I still maintain that he kicked himself in the balls. I love that line. <laughs> I have used that so often, even though I've never done any ball kicking. Um, do you guys remember, and this has been going around Twitter and Tumblr, uh, somebody put together a YouTube fake trailer with DC superheroes, because everybody in this movie has played a DC superhero supervillain. Um, and as like a high school comedy. So they have, so Heath Ledger, you know, is obviously like the Joker. So it, bits from 10 Things I Hate About You include Heath Ledger and I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt mm-hmm. and Larissa Olenek. And then they have, they found bits with both Tom Hardy and I guess Christian Bale from other movies they did when they were younger. And mm-hmm. they cut it together with, the, uh, and it's like, God, welcome to Gotham High. And it's, it's, it's really cute and funny. And it uses a lot of that movie. <laughs> What other modern day reimaginings have we not? I don't. <sighs> what um, that I know one? There was there was Scotland, PA, which was Macbeth in a restaurant in Pennsylvania, and I want to say that had Maura Tierney in it. Hold on, I'm trying to think of any other of any recent ones, but yeah. a lot of the ones I'm thinking of are like either Austin or other books. They're not necessarily Shakespeare. Well, not, it's not a new one. It's you know it's about the same age as me actually. But before Henry the Fourth was done by BBC, the, probably the most famous screen adaptation of it, of extremely loose adaptation, was Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. That's right. Which mm. is loose adaptation, but you can spot the elements if you look for them, particularly um, the, the Falstaff character in particular. If you haven't seen my own private idol. It's Gus Van Sant. It's River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. It's the best thing Keanu Reeves has ever done, by the way. He can actually act in it. And it's about two um, queer street hustlers who are sort of traveling around together, one of whom is narcoleptic for some reason. And the sort of sure. gang that they have created together. And one of them is in love with the other one, who's actually a secret posh boy who's just rebelling against his family. So he's kind of the Hal of the piece. And they have this middle-aged man who's like a mentor to a gang of kids who is the Falstaff of the piece. It's I can't really describe the plot of it because it's it's like a lot of Gus Van Sant movies in that it's quite plotless. 
Well, there is something strangely beautiful and mesmerizing about it. I think it's just because River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves are so good in it. Keanu Reeves, by the way, when he was a teenager here in Toronto, was involved in the production of Romeo and Juliet, and the director of it said in an interview that he came to the audition and with all the boys vying for the lead role said, I need to play Mercutio. <laughs> and I'll always respect him for that. Yeah. You, I like you, ha- you have to be a good act. I really like You have to be a good actor to know that Mercutio is the role with the oomph. Yeah. <laughs> I will defend Keanu forever because I think he's wonderful. Right. You He's and me, Kaylee, the last two people I, on the war. Yeah, I think that Keanu can act. He just doesn't always, <laughs> obviously. And I think when he picks his roles correctly, he can excel in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he doesn't always pick his roles correctly. <laughs> uh, it's been said that The Lion King is an adaptation of Hamlet, I think purely for the Avenge Me by killing your uncle bit and I think it's just a smokescreen um, because what it actually is is of course is a ripoff of Simba the White Lion <laughs> but we don't talk about that we pretend Disney is perfect <laughs> but that does Ask just show how about my thoughts on saving Mr. Banks go on <laughs> ask please tell me they're similar to what my thought is and I haven't even seen the movie I'm not gonna see the movie fuck we gonna burn I love Disney Emma Thompson around. but no fuck it Moving on. <laughs> just coming back to if you're interested, and I'll see if it's online for you. Uh, the Culture Show, which is a British show that talks about arts, culture, and movies and things, did a thing on the real PL Travers mm-hmm. in the, you know, the, uh, coming up to the release of Saving Mr. Banks. So it actually gives you an idea of what kind of person she was and just how screwed over she was by Disney. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, uh, I did read an excellent piece, which the basic thesis of which, yeah, let's take um, a bisexual single mother who wrote erotica and was very, you know, adventurous and had a fabulous life, and make her a boring middle-aged spinster who just doesn't understand how wonderful Mr. Disney is. Also, the woman who wrote Saving Mr. Banks is the screenwriter for Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm just saying. <laughs> What was that about people who had to kick in the balls, metaphorically? Speaking, of course, this time. Um, Did you read Meryl Streep's speech that she gave before giving an award to Emma Thompson? Yeah. She called out Walt yes. Disney for being an anti Semite and a sexist? Yeah. It, it has oh, like been now. linked on the Anglophies t- Tumblr feed. I'm just saying. <laughs> we have a Tumblr. That is a thing that happened. Anglophies.tumblr.com. <laughs> just in case you're curious. <laughs> Did I mention there was a lot of beer last night? <laughs> Go to Raiden's Twitter feed if you want some entertainment, people. It has been entertaining. <laughs> there, there may have been fake tap dancing to rock around the clock in bowling shoes. It's entirely possible. I can neither, neither confirm nor deny. Um... We haven't just uh, kind of we're wrapping up, but just for I don't know pure sentimental reasons, because this is the one play that everybody knows. What's everybody's favorite adaptation of Romeo and Juliet? I have a very soft spot for the Zeffirelli. Yeah, I'm gonna. I was gonna say Zeffirelli too. I mean, my my experience for watching the first Baz Luhrmann or the first the Baz Luhrmann version was not good, and that sort of colors my 
my feelings toward it. It has nothing to do with the adaptation itself. It's just the the emotions surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to be the contrarian heathen and say that I my favorite is the Baz Luhrmann version because it's in, in the sense that Rome, that his version of Moulin Rouge isn't about love so much as it's about the idea of love and love in a movie and love in a story. I think that's kind of what he's going for with his Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And it is garish, it is over the top, but then again, when you're 14 years old and in love, your love is the most important thing in the world and it's covered in rainbows and glitter and you know, cross-dressing actors from Lost singing along to Young Hearts Run Free, of course you would sort of use that aesthetic. Um, and I like watching Baz Luhrmann apply his aesthetic properly. I'm not like Australia, or I haven't seen The Great Gatsby, so I can't comment on that. But like Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think his aesthetic really worked for Great Gatsby. My sister really loved it, and she's a big fan of The Great Gatsby book. Hmm. Uh, any plays you'd like to see adapted or readapted? Um, oh god, we didn't talk about Julie Taymor's Titus. How can we forget that? Oh my god. <laughs> talk about it. It's insane. It's, it is. I mean, we, we're talking, like, people on mushrooms, and yeah. I mean, if you, if you understand anything about Julie Taymor's career, Julie Taymor is an art school lady. She is someone who traveled the world doing puppetry, and um, very sort of left of mainstream style theatre the way that she did The Lion King which I got to see before Christmas was a huge deal because she took something that was supposed to be a quick cash in and turned it into sheer art mm-hmm. and she's kind of done that with Titus Andronicus even though it's probably Shakespeare's bleakest play it's one that's really is imbued with madness is more than any of its other pieces she's taken that and she has run with it there was nothing that looks like it, certainly at the time. There's nothing that feels as trippy as that, and it works. And it's another one that's got an excellent cast. It's Anthony Hopkins, Alan Cumming, um, Angus McFadden, Matthew Reese. Uh, who else is in it? Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang. Um, Jonathan Reese Myers is in it, I believe. Um, yep. It was a massive flop. Like It made no money, but it has become something of a cult hit, which I'm thankful for, because... I don't think we're ever really going to see that play adapted again. And hopefully not, because I think this one really does stand up to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I love, this is like um, Baz Luhrmann in that aspect, I love it when Julie Taymor applies her aesthetic properly. And I think she does it really wonderfully here. I think she did it with Lion King. Her movie on Frida Kahlo does it really well. Um, Spider-Man the Musical, not so much. <laughs> but she, her, re- her most recent production in on stage in New York is A Midsummer Night's Dream. And apparently it's stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I do have a question for the two of you. Has either one of you seen the Al Pacino Merchant of Venice? Yes. No. Is it... Okay. Is the play still kind of unpalatable? In that version? Because I haven't it's... seen that version. Merchant of Venice is such a strange play because it's about a vengeful Jew who is depicted in the most anti-Semitic way possible because that's what Jews were thought of at the time and it's still considered a comedy and I really didn't feel any of the comedy or so-called comedy in the film. There's some good acting but this is latter day Pacino. This is, you know, show me my ham, Al Pacino. (laughs) And I mean, he's a little more restrained but... 
this is, I think it's one of the instances where he's more bearable. I mean, this isn't like, you know, the devil's advocate Al Pacino, where he just goes from 100 to 100 in terms of crazy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'd recommend it. It just, it's not very memorable. The problem... There's not much about it that stands out to me, and it is a big, very problematic play, and I don't think it entirely gets that. Although he has since played the role on Broadway as well, and apparently that was a better production. I yeah, there's the problem with that play. It's like you said, it's played for laughs, but and you know, um, full disclosure, possibly someone who is Jewish, when you have that speech about you know, when you prick me, do I not bleed, and you see some productions where it's kind of played for laughs or even like he does it in the superior voice. No, do you know what it's like to have to prove to somebody that you're a human being? That's not a comedy and that's not funny. And I think, I don't know if maybe if a production who actually try to play, you know, not shy away from the uh, racist problems in it, but actually like make a serious production of it could have make it a success. Uh, you know, kind of as a tragedy of Shylock's life as opposed to, you know, the comedy of all the people around him that might work, but yeah, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, the most recent Broadway production that Al Pacino did was mm-hmm. more sympathetic to Shylock in that aspect, but it was in America, so obviously I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. And I've just, as I've been thinking of like the plays I'd like to see adapted, I kind of realized that I don't think we've had an Othello for a while. I would love to see a fellow done really well. I've seen two of fellows. I've seen the one where Kenneth Branagh plays Iago, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty good. Although um, I mean, it's I Lawrence remember. Fishburne. Yeah, it's Lawrence so. Fishburne. Um, he, he, there is a man who knows how to give amazing evil stare. Like there is a man who has built a career on doing that. Um, mm-hmm. There was another one which was a modern day adaptation called O, and I believe mm-hmm. Josh Hart it plays Iago. Yeah, Julia Stiles is in that one too. It was like the high school one, right? Yeah. Yeah, but the thing I remember about that really clearly was the DVD case we had for that in school has Josh Harnett on the front and he's rubbing his chin in a a sinister manner. (laughs) And I always found that really funny. (laughs) But it was okay. I mean, it doesn't do it well, but, you know, it takes a not bad stab at it. And I really like Julia Stiles as um, Desdemona. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, Rain Phoenix turns up in it, which I always found really exciting when I was a teenager because I was God, like. Andrew Keegan kissed. is in that too, and he was in um, he was in Ten Things. Oh, he's the wow. the narcissistic model guy, right? Yeah. When he's showing his headshots, he goes, "What do I look pensive? Oh, I was going for thoughtful." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's but I haven't. Oh, was what ten years ago now at least? Oh, more. More, right? Uh, yeah, wait. So. Yeah, I wonder if maybe it's time to try that one again. People adapt to adapt Shakespeare and make these things happen. Totally listen to us. Who are we casting as Othello? Because I would like to throw my uh, towel in for Chiotelagia for. Well, that's who I was going to go for. I was going to say Idris Elba. But... <laughs> I was going to say Idris Elba for <laughs> well, everything, please. Yeah. <laughs> Which is something that, that actually makes me kind of uncomfortable because there are so many other there actors... Are. Yeah, there are. It's just he's the best description of Idris Elba that ever came across my Tumblr dashboard. Said Idris Elba looks the way really good male cologne smells. Yes, <laughs> and I was like, yes, that is exactly how he looks. Even, even my grandmother fancies him. Does she know about his tweet? I don't think she does. Although my grandmother also fancies Lawrence Fishburne, so <laughs> your grandmother has good taste. 
I know. I, 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 am, I am seriously impressed with actually the taste of both my mother and my grandmother. <laughs> okay. Oh, like yeah, adapted because I I love a lot of Shakespeare. I've read a lot of Shakespeare. I'm trying. To think. I would love to see some of the this the the more obscure plays maybe done by the BBC because I think that it would be great to expose them to a new audience because there are so many, particularly in my generation, um, that won't really tackle it unless it's been adapted for the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think that our education system is kind of like that as well. You need something to placate them for a couple hours while you go off and do something else. Um, I- I'm looking forward to seeing how Cymbeline does, although I'm less optimistic knowing that it's a modern-day adaptation set around bikers. Because mm-hmm. sure. that, that, that kind of feels like a Ken of Brana in Japan for As You Like It situation, where it's just like, hey, I was watching Sons of Anarchy, and I also had a copy of Shakespeare open. <laughs> oh, I bet you that's how it happened. You got my Shakespeare and my Sons of Anarchy. You got my Sons of Anarchy and my Shakespeare. <laughs> Two great days that go together? Let's find out. <laughs> Wait, I think that that having the adaptations for people to sort of... to what their their appetite and is really good for Shakespeare because it's not meant to be read it's meant to be seen and experienced I think this that, is an issue that a lot of um, education systems have when it comes to Shakespeare and also with poetry which is a lot of this isn't meant for you to sit down and go over it with a pen and underline oh here's iambic pentameter here's you know a metaphor etc etc it's supposed to be performed and if you just reduce it simply to, well, this word means this and this word means that, you're not going to learn anything. And you're going to be bored stuff and it's going to destroy Shakespeare for you forever. Yep. And I, there are still stuff that I studied in high school that I'm kind of wary of just because it was so screwed over for me by teaching. Like, um, Lord of the Flies, I can never read again because all I can think of is, I get it, the conch is a metaphor, shut up. <laughs> um, I, I, have so- I have begun to soften towards Macbeth because we did study that. Um but I, I have much more of appreciation for it now, particularly Lady Macbeth. But we, the one we had to watch in school for that one was the Roman Polanski movie. Oh. Which, uh. when you're introduced to the three witches, there aren't three witches. There are about 25 witches. They're all women over a certain age, and they're all naked. Why? Because Roman then, Polanski? Yeah, because Roman Polanski. And then when Lady Macbeth is having her breakdown, where will this spot not wipe clean? She's naked. Why? Polanski. Ugh. <laughs> I was also just generally pissed off that it's a play about Scottish people and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of Scottish people in it. It's the Scottish play. You'd think. One would think. Most recent stage adaptation of that, Macbeth, Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> and Alex Kingston was Lady Macbeth. Oh. And they had a, a... It was done in a... It wasn't open air so much as it was. You were sitting around what was designed as like a jousting arena. And all the mm. fighting took place, and the ground was actually muddy, and they had rain, and it was very immersive. And I really wanted to see it because it's Kenneth Branagh and Alex Kingston, and I'm broke and I can't go anywhere. <laughs> God, it's so unfair. I know, boo. I know. Um. So, listeners, we're gonna leave you. Oh, we're gonna leave you here with one last thing: with the Shakespeare's original language video, which we will link. We will link. Which was possi- which possibly something we talked about, but it's a great illustration to the point Kaylee was making about it's meant to be seen. Uh, we'll leave you with a really fantastic video. It's only 10 minutes long uh, by a father-son pair of scholars who help a Shakespeare production company put on plays using the pronunciation that would have been used in Shakespeare's time, which really changes the rhyming schemes 
i.e. the way we hear them, they don't actually rhyme, but in Shakespeare's time they did, and the dick jokes just come through a lot clearer in that. <laughs> because if there's one thing you need your dick jokes to be, it's clear. Yes. <laughs> You've got to see them coming. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Shakespeare would have loved that one. <laughs> yes, he would have. <laughs> um, so, speaking of Tom Hiddleston... In current productions, he is currently starring in Coral. Somebody pronounce it properly because I know Coriolanus. Coriolanus. Coriolanus at the National Theatre of Britain. This is sad for everybody who's not in London, but wait! Um, they are actually uh, streaming a production in th- movie theaters across the globe on January 30th. And there are some encore performances. We will link you to the lists of locations. There might be one near you. Some of them might be sold out. Who the hell knows? But it's worth a shot because it's Tom Hiddleston and he gets bloody and hot. And Dean Thomas from Harry Potter is in it. And Dean Thomas from Harry Potter is in it. Speaking of one who won the puberty sweepstakes, have you seen pictures of him recently? He won. I, what were the catering team of the Harry Potter movies serving up? Because I want some of it. I don't know. I don't know. I feel a little bit dirty saying that. But he won the puberty sweepstakes. Good job. Good job. So I think that... I mean, we could go on for a couple more hours, but I don't think our listeners really want us to. Um, you can email us at anglofees.gmail at... Bleh. No, don't email us there. You can tweet at us at, at Anglofees. You can email us, anglofees at gmail.com. I noticed that we don't actually have any reviews on iTunes. If we could have a few, that would be nice. Maybe. I don't know. Worth a shot. And, uh, yeah, that covers us this month. Next month, we're going to be talking about the Olympics. It'll be fun. Anybody else have anything to say? Or should I just keep going? <laughs> okay. Sorry, I, I was just looking at pictures of Tom Hiddleston. Sorry. Alina, do you still exist? Oh, jeez. I had my microphone muted and I didn't realize. <laughs> I don't know how long I've been silent. I was just about to set our years free and I was just saying how my neighborhood theater is streaming the Tom Hiddleston career Alina, so I'm happy right now. so we will see you all next month bye bye Bye. you have been listening to Anglophies a made of fail production